Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey everybody, it's Jen, and I'm back with another episode of Create Out Loud, the podcast that is all about helping you, yeah, create out loud, get out of your own way, and make more of what you want in whatever field, whatever discipline, whatever form. Today we have a conversation that's all about conviction, self-trust, and that it's never too late. Angeline Bully is the author of The Firekeeper's Daughter. It debuted at number one in the New York Times, and this is her first novel. It is a Reese Witherspoon YA book club choice, and it has been optioned by the Obamas for a Netflix TV series. She is a member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians of the Bear Clan of Sugar Island, which is between Michigan's Upper Peninsula and Canada. Angeline has had the kind of success that I don't even know if novelists allow themselves to dream of, certainly not what she expected. But this isn't an episode, this isn't an interview about success, it's about self-trust. You'll know exactly what I mean. Come on, let's listen. What do you think when someone says, I'm too old, it's too late, I can't do it to pursue a creative desire? What comes up for you now? Now it's, I just want to shake them and say, it's it's not too late I mean what are you you know what are you waiting for and why not why not give it a give it a go I'd I'd love you to walk me through that life (laughs) from when you had the first (laughs) inkling of the idea and I'm going to try really hard you all for no story spoilers because this book is so precious and you, you need to be in the world of the story and enjoy it like I've gotten to. So I'm going to try really hard not to give anything away. When that first inkling of the idea came to you, you were 18. And right. you published Firekeeper's Daughter at 54, 55? Um, I got my deal at 54 and published, I was 50, I'm 55. So what was it like in terms of keeping that idea alive, thinking of yourself as a writer? We give up on these things that call us. And you didn't give up. There were times when it went to sleep on me, <laughs> I would say. And then things would happen in my life. And that spark of the story idea would come back in it. And then it would whisper. And then that would get louder and louder. There were times I had to set it aside. I have three children. I went through a divorce. Um, I relocated to Washington, D.C. I mean, there were some major career ups and downs. Uh, I ran for tribal council election for my tribe and did not win. Been through, I've been through some things and, but I would listen to that whisper and it would get louder and louder. And then I just felt compelled to sit down and write. I can completely relate to some things have happened, right? (laughs) That is life, right? These huge (laughs) things happen. But what's the difference between those of us who listen through those things happening and those of us who don't? That's what I'm so curious about. I tried not to beat myself up Mm. about it. It was like, okay, I have to set this aside for now. It was that I'm going to get back to this. It doesn't mean I'm 
you know, walking away from this idea, but I need to focus on this right now. And I guess I had faith that I would come back to it, that I guess I just trusted that things would happen when I was ready. Once again, we have a guest talk about self-compassion. How many times does that come up? I swear it's every episode. Beating yourself up for what you're not doing, always raising the bar, expecting things from yourself in your creative work that don't fit in your life, pretending that you can be somebody you aren't in terms of time or energy, whatever it is, it's not gonna make it possible for you to create out loud. My dad calls that the true um, belief about Indian time. You know, that things happen when they're supposed to. Instead of the disparaging use of Indian time. Yeah, exactly. So I view it as a positive thing. Like, I am thankful that previous drafts did not get published because they, I was not ready. I learned a lot. And, and so I'm very thankful that it happened when I was ready. It seems like there's such a deep why behind this story. Uh, you know, to really make this vivid, nuanced representation of modern indigenous life. Did that draw you forward that deep why, or was it more the craft of writing or the mystery, or it's all, you know, one big, wonderful thing? I think it was wanting to tell this story in the hopes that young readers, particularly Native, would feel seen in a story, and that if this story could help them find, reconnect with their Uh, Native identity, hopefully help them to avoid some things that I went through and that my kids went through and my former students that I would see where your identity as a Native person gets wrapped up in how other people perceive you. And so when you care about that, you're always either too much of something or not enough. And, And so I think there's this that real coming of age story is claiming your identity for yourself. And I felt like that, of course, at first the the idea of the story about the thriller, but then knowing that at its heart, it was this coming of age story about claiming one's identity and place in your community. And it was just dressed up and wrapped up in a thriller. Which is always the question when we're writing or creating anything, what is it really about? You know, uh, Lisa Cron is a story expert who's going to be on the show. And she talks about how there's this, it's like there's a crater and we walk around the crater. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and what it's really about, what the story is really about is inside that crater. And it sounds like for you, that representation and an attempt to help us not, help Native youth not lose themselves in the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, did You were the director for the Office of Indian Education in DC. Did that work inform the book in that you saw how kids lose themselves or is that completely unrelated? No, no. My career in Indian education really helped inform the story. And just realizing that through this story, I might reach more people than I ever could have as, you know, as that director, our office would award $175 million a year in grant funding to public schools, uh, tribal schools, tribal colleges, tribal, tribal communities to improve Indian education. The fact that a story could maybe get the message out better than 
you know, because there were times when I would just feel really frustrated by maybe the bureaucracy of grant funding. Um, I'm trying to say that this in a really diplomatic way. You are so diplomatic. (laughs) Oh my gosh. If you could hear the words in my head. I worked with wonderful people in DC. Let me say that. I also, I never realized how involved maybe program attorneys are in, I felt sometimes, I'm going to be really blunt here. I felt sometimes like if I had to use the bathroom that I needed to check in with my program attorney before I, I get it, it. before I left my office to go use the restroom. And so there were times when I would push back and I would say, are you advising me on, you know, the regulation and if it's regulatory, please. Yes. If it's a program question, that's, that's my job. That's what I get to decide. And, and I think, you know, just knowing what your role is and when to speak up and when you have to, you know, the attorneys have, you know, so it was a big learning experience for me. There's two places I want to go. So I'm just going to go one place because you can only go one place at a time, but (laughs) that self-trust that it sounds like you had to learn as a woman, as a native woman is so much in your main character. She trusts herself. That's one of the things that's so exciting. I mean, I love how she remembers her values that her firekeeper father and her grandmothers have, well, grandmother on one side has taught her. I mean, I'm reading that and I stop and I reflect and I'm like, how am I living those values? Did the self-trust that you had to develop in the situation in, in DC, in that job, did it translate to writing? Yes, because the position had been vacant for two years in DC. And I worked as a federal contractor on a couple different um, projects for Department of Ed. And I would be in the room when conversations would be had about the type of director that they needed. And it was the realization that I would be the best person you know, that I would be the best person for this job and and going for it, knowing that I was the right person in the right place, uh, had the right background to really own that. And that's not confidence that I had when I was younger by any means. And that's why I'm glad that the book, that it wasn't ready to be published until I am who I am today, because that same confidence came through in that last draft that I wrote uh, when I went and got, you know, an agent and the book deal, the confidence in the choices, the artistic choices that I made, uh, the craft decisions that I made that came through in my writing. So when I would talk with prospective agents or editors that were interested in acquiring the publishing rights, I could speak with confidence. And I think that was something that had them sit up and take notice to be a debut author, but yet to be solidly behind my convictions of why I wrote what I wrote. So clear, Angeline allowed herself to become who she needed to be to write this story, that the process of writing it and not writing it was growing her. This is one of the mistakes that I've made and I see people I work with make it's one of the reasons we fall into why bother. We think we have to be the person who can create the work, but we actually become the person by creating the work. And there's a lot of discomfort in that. And there's a lot of growth and there's a lot of wrong turns, but it's a loop. It's a feedback loop. We do the work, we become, and we change through doing the work. And then that feeds into the work. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. I wrote about it in my book, Why Bother? Another reason why I think pursuing these goals and then that I was in my 50s, there's this part two about like not giving a crap about <laughs> yeah. you know I'm fewer not crops be, to give we'll say yeah that I have, yeah I have fewer crops to give and that I'm not going to allow myself to be defined by what some agent says or what some you know a rejection or something like that it's like no I I've been through this I've been through it in romantic relationships I've been through it in my career I've been through it you know I'm not going to define myself by any one accomplishment I just want to like stop and I want my whole body to take that in because that is when we go back to the beginning of our conversation, why it's never too late. In fact, we right. want, we want to draw on that. Yeah. You don't, you don't get to define me. I get to define me. And then that's in your character. It's in your story. It's yes. in, is that one of the reasons why I don't think this is giving away too much. The main character is not an enrolled member. Is that part of why you did that and also mm -hmm. how you played with how do you define the different color there's a oh, very the, funny way you say it yeah the Anishinaabe acceptable or the acceptable Anishinaabe skin tone continuum <laughs> every time so, I read because, that I laugh out loud <laughs> yeah Donis is a very science-minded person so of course she can define this um you know as a continuum and she happens to fall on the very light side her best friend lily falls on the darker end of the spectrum but re recognizing that they both have to put up with similar kinds of bs about mm -hmm. people's views of what an indian is supposed to look like and mm -hmm. how they're supposed to be i've lived in the west for most of my life and have lived around different reservations and casinos. And so I, I just loved it, how you portrayed the casino wealth and the intricacy of it, which is so, I've never seen that done in fiction before. Thank you for that. So many people think that A, every tribe has a casino and it's just rolling in the dollars and B, that it's, you know, the, the expectations that people have about well, then didn't all the problems go away? If, right, right. Because you, you have money now, so all the problems go away. Wouldn't, why wouldn't that solve everything? Oh. And really wanted to tell a story that wasn't black and white. And I really do believe like what Aunt Teddy says about per capita is not, uh, it's like money, the value of money. It's neither good nor bad. It takes on whatever, whatever it amplifies whatever is going on. Mm -hmm. in the person or the community or the family. And, and so there are wonderful things that happen because of per capita. And there are also some awful things that happen, but that's for the tr that tribe to decide that that's mm -hmm. what they're going to do with their casino mm -hmm. profits. I loved how Donis handles the money and I won't say anything else because you'll have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why I made her come from a family uh, her white family is very wealthy. Mm -hmm. I wanted the money to not be an issue about her tribal membership because she, she is not an enrolled member. I didn't want her to be envious or feel like she was lacking in that financial prosperity. Oh, so that that's was brilliant. Why... I didn't think about, I kind of thought about it, but I was too engrossed in the story to really bring out my critical story mind. I wanted her to grow up with that mindset about money that she's always grown up with it. So it's not, 
It's not a huge factor in her life, but then for her to recognize what that privilege is and how it impacts how people view her and yeah. And it's brilliant because it plays on the stereotypes of natives because she's a right. rich native girl who has to deal with her privilege as a rich native person. Yeah. I love it. There's, yes. there's so many layers to the story. It makes me so excited. I just, I'm, I, I'm obviously a big fan of Firekeeper's Daughter and of the cover, which is also gorgeous. Yes. Oh my gosh. My publisher has talked about this as being like this, maybe like revolutionary thing or this like incredible collaborative thing that they did in that they knew that I really wanted an Ojibwe artist. Most debut authors don't have you know, any You don't leverage. get title, and, you don't get cover, you don't get, <laughs> yeah. you don't get any of that. <laughs> but, you know, I was able to have input. So they really listened to my input of wanting Native representation in that art. They found this uh, Ojibwe artist, Moses Lunham. He's First Nations from Kettle and Stony Point, Ontario. They worked with him and he's incredible. I think it's it shouldn't be this big deal about this mm. collaboration, but it is. And I just think it should be best practices. It should be not best practice. It should be standard practice that mm -hmm. if you're publishing a story from an, uh, an author's lived experience, having that representation in the art is it elevates that storytelling even further. Instead of what does the department have time to create? <laughs> Right, right. I want to go back to your job at the department, your former job as the director of Office of Indian Education. You're done. You you left. You're living in the UP. You're writing full time. What has that transition been like from the structure, from living in a busy city? And now you're in that very enviable position of getting to write full time, which you so beautifully say in your bio and on your website, you're very grateful for. But how's it working for you to go from that to this? Yes, I just, I had such exhausting days, um, you know, getting up and early and working on revisions or working, you know, on my book, my passion, and then commuting into DC yeah. for a 10 hour work day and being exhausted when I would come home. And then when I got the book deal, it was beyond anything I dollar wise, it's life changing money. It means that my children can pursue my children and my nieces can pursue any degree that they want, as many degrees as they want, and they will never have to worry about student debt. And so to me, that is like what that money is life changing for my family. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't immediately quit my job. I, I stayed working there for like a good four or five months until I realized that the scope of revisions I was working on, I could not do it while I was doing 10 hour work days uh, at Department of Ed. I put in my notice and I left in February of 2020 and a month later, everything shut down with COVID. And I'm, I think timing wise, I, I think I got out at the right time, because had I stayed any later, I think I would have felt obligated to stay through the COVID crisis. But the book deal that I got, that needed to be my priority to make good on that contract. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to be available for, I needed to give my energies to that. And then there came the realization, I came back to Michigan and visited my parents and my kids and 
And I thought, wait, I could write from anywhere. Why am I paying a huge rent to live in DC when I could be back in Michigan? My parents are both 80. And I thought, I'm going to move back to my, you know, childhood hometown and, and hang out with them. And so I kind of was like moving back for them. But what has turned out is they're here for me. So my editor called the day that my book debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Let's just take a breath there. That is amazing. I know. It's so amazing. I mean, I'm living vicariously through your success. It's just such a cool thing because the book so deserves it and you so deserve it. And it's just so wonderful. Uh So yeah, so she calls, tells the story. So she calls and tells me, we just like scream at each other on the phone, like for five minutes, just back and forth. And then my parents came over and we had dinner. We were planning to have dinner and we played Yahtzee and my mom like kicked my butt in Yahtzee. And so I really think that moving back and that normalcy has been the best thing while all this other surreal stuff is happening for for me and for the story. Um, so I'm just really thankful of how things have turned out. I'm sure that was grounding when when you got the news that the Obamas are making it into a TV series. <laughs> <laughs> Can we play Yahtzee again? (laughs) Yeah. When I told my mom about the book deal, when the book auction came through and I I told my mom, you know, all the details and my mom said, really? And then she said, I'll tell your dad, you got a good deal, but I'm not going to tell him how much. I don't want it to change like how he would look at me or something. I was like, okay. That's so sweet. It just, it was, yeah. Have you had weird encounters where people are treating you differently or have you... Like, is there anything, I mean, it's still pretty new, but yeah, it is new. No, no. I just, I had like one like little experience at in (laughs) a Barnes and Noble nearby. I went into, because it was going to be my first time seeing the book on, you know, shelves and everything. (laughs) And yeah, out in the wild, observing it in its natural habitat. So I'm standing in front of the display thing that they had. And I'm just like, you know, I have my mask on, but I'm still like, the store person came around and goes, can I help you? And I said, um, could you take a picture of me in front of my book display? And she was like, oh, you're Angeline Pulley. And <laughs> she gets on her microphone thingy and she's like, I have an author in the store. It's Angeline Bully. And then like all these other workers like came over and then they're like, can you sign our books? I guess that was a really great encounter. Oh, I love that and so much. Yeah. But outside of bookstores and with book staff, I'm not recognized. I mean, that's just not anything that. I just want to go back for a second. Is it hard to structure your time now that you don't have to structure your time? Because I know you're working on a new book. Right. That I'm really glad that you asked that because I think I feel like I was more productive when I had to squeeze in my Mm -hmm. writing from 5 to 8 a.m. I got more pages written than having all this time but I'm my time is being so much is consumed by promotion Mm -hmm. um, of book one but I am working on research for book two and outlining and we work in drafting and I, I feel like I have to relearn what's my best time for writing and get back into like some routine because 
that was my most productive time is when and when you don't yeah. have to get up at 4.30 to start yeah. writing by five, <laughs> hmm, sometimes the motivation is just not there. I remember my yeah. most productive time was when my daughter was a baby, colicky baby, and I had a book due and I would get so much work done in those three hours while my parents had her. And I look back at that and granted, I was 27 years younger <laughs> than I am now. <laughs> Do you miss being in the world of the story? Do you miss your characters? I feel like I'm still there because book two is in that same world. Oh, great. And, and I guess, you know, it's a different time. One, you know, is 2004, 2005. So book two is a different time period. And I know what has happened to characters. And so I knew that while I was writing book one, because I wanted to make sure I had some Easter eggs in there. And tell us what you mean by Easter eggs for people who won't know. Little nuggets of that are like little uh, foreshadowing and little hints about, you know, what the next book is going to be about and the characters that are going to feature more prominently in it. Oh, I so want to know. I know you can't tell me, but now I'm going to go through and read it again going, where's the Easter eggs? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things you've said in interviews is that you are writing in this book, Firekeeper's Daughter, about trauma, but you aren't writing a tragedy. So can you kind of pull that apart for me? I Because I know a lot of times when I work with writers, they are writing about difficult things, whether it's fiction or memoir. And sometimes that it feels so dense and dark to them and so hard to craft story out of it. Right. I listened, I went to the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of the American Indian. Tommy Orange, the author of There There, was doing a reading and conversation with someone. And so uh, my friends and I went during the audience questions, someone had said like, oh, I just was so taken by all of the horrible things. I'm so sorry that, you know, it was kind of that uninformed, well-meaning, but clueless, non-native person mm -hmm. who only sees the tragedy and doesn't mm -hmm. see, you know, only sees the trauma and thinks of us only in our, in terms of our as trauma. If you, as, if, as if time stopped. Yeah. Yes. And Tommy was like, did you read the same story that I wrote because Ooh, did you I read that book <laughs> I don't view my he said something along the lines of I do not view my story as a tragedy I wrote a story and you know there are some good things that happen there's some wanting to tell a truthful story means nuanced and balanced so yes there are unpleasant truths but there's also so much joy and healing and things that uh, if you only look at the trauma, you're missing, you're missing half the story. And oh, more than, I wanted more to make sure that the story. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that that came through. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I yes. love your humor. Oh my God. I love it when Donis works at the um, senior center. Those are some of my favorite scenes. <laughs> 
those <laughs> elders. And that was very much informed by when I worked for my tribe, I was the assistant executive director for our tribal government. And so I worked with all of our membership services programs, education, culture, recreation, social services, and elders. And so I would go eat lunch over at the elder center, you know, a couple times uh, a week. I would miss my dad because my, my mom and dad don't live in Sault Ste. Marie. But hanging out with my dad's friends and that they laugh at the same things that my dad laughs at. And it just made me feel, helped me to not miss my dad so much. So yeah, they're hilarious. They're hilarious. I love it. I love, can you make me an entire CD of, is it Dolly Parton? No, it's Patsy Cline, I think. I think it was Patsy Cline. Yeah, Yeah. I want every song Patsy Cline ever wrote (laughs) uh, or sang. Um, discovered iTunes back in the day, I was burning CDs for my dad. Like my dad would get buy an iTunes card and then he would sit at my computer with me at home when he would visit. And he'd be like, oh, what about Ernest Tubbs? What about this? What about that? And then I'd click and buy all the songs and he'd always like spend his card so fast. So then I'd be like, all right, I'll add these other songs to it. <laughs> it's like he's dime. the teenager. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then I would say, okay, what order do you want it in? And he was like, really? We can, I'd be like, yeah, we can arrange it in the order. And then I would print the um, label. He thought that I was just this wizard of music. You were more tech than (laughs) Bill Gates. (laughs) Oh, but then also with my dad, um, his, our hometown, they had, they received a grant and it was for teens to teach senior citizens how to use technology. And so they were giving away iPads to senior citizens, but they'd have to agree to these tutoring sessions that these teens would. So my dad has still has the same iPad that he's had for like 10 years. That part of the story about elders adapting and figuring out how to use technology. And that, that was, that's a really key part of the book too. You do such a great job of connecting the dots of layering the different things that are, whether it's the identity issues, the money thing, the things we've been talking about. And then so many other things that I can't talk about in terms of the thriller part of it, which leads me to my question. Was it scary to learn to cook meth? Um, it was fascinating to be clear. I have not cooked meth. Oh, you just watched have, other people. I have, I have learned how, but okay. I have not. You haven't actually done it. Okay. That's probably a good thing to yeah. clarify. <laughs> yeah. Just so no one thinks that I actually would be competent at making it. No, I would. So it looked, really, reading about it, it's really sounds hard. I had no idea what went into it. Yeah. Breaking Bad, um, really. I, I couldn't watch Breaking Bad. I couldn't, yeah. I watched like four I, episodes. It was so depressing and so sad. I couldn't watch it. Yeah, I think I watched just a couple episodes and then I was afraid of having too much of my story. I just didn't want to. You didn't want those images and those. Yeah, I wanted my research to stand on its own and not be a regurgitation of Breaking Bad science. Francisco Stork was your mentor in We Need Diverse Books mentorship program. How important was that mentorship and being in that program to getting the novel to where it went to auction and went to the Obamas and went debuted at number one in the New York Times? It was so important. And I think 
I hadn't really grasped how important it was until afterwards. And then realizing that that, that visibility or that credential caught the attention of people in publishing. That was the part that I hadn't quite, you know, when I applied for it, I had gotten rejected the first year that I applied for it. And then I decided to try a second time. And that's when I got paired up with Francisco. Then when the book deal came out, that was what people would focus on in the, like their, the news articles. It was Mm -hmm. like that I gained attention through, we need diverse books. So I was like, oh, wow, it really did open some doors. But it was life-changing in that Francisco, when he got done giving me feedback critique on my manuscript, he said, I think you really have something here. And I've been talking about you with my agent. She's really interested in reading the manuscript if you'd like to send it to her. Because he knew that I was going to be seeking a liter- you know, a book agent shortly. So he just you know, encouraged me if I was interested to put her on my short list of agents that I was interested in. And I did. And she wasn't really on social media a lot. And so I don't know that I necessarily would have if it wasn't for him mentioning her. And then I looked into her and I'm like, wow, she's, she's a big deal. She's like a literary agent rock star. And then she ended up just being the right fit and just the best agent for me. So now Francisco and I share. Your editor has an amazing story that a year or so before she successfully bid on the book, she anonymously read about 250 words of the story and it stuck in her head. And then she realized when she got your manuscript to bid on it, that it was the same story. That is just, I love the synchronicity yeah. of that. It was six months. Six before, months. Okay. Six months before we went out on submission and I had been at a conference and there was this anonymous, you could submit your first 250 words. It got projected on a screen. There was an agent and an editor that would give their immediate reactions to. And I submitted it because I was interested in the agent and I I wasn't thinking about editors at that point. I was still so focused on um, getting an agent and the agent was completely silent throughout it. Didn't offer a word of feedback, but the editor was like, she really liked it. So then when it came time to work on a submission list with my agent, I was like, I want to include her. She really, she really got it. She really liked me. So yeah, that's it. So there feels like something that's so full circle. Um, it does. The story of the book just reads like a story. It reads yeah. like somebody designed it. Yeah. The story of my story is filled with all of these interconnected and timing and serendipity and just and patience all these things. And mm-hmm. One of the things I'm most struck by is, and in this conversation too, is your inner conviction is the best word I can think of. There's just an inner strength, self-trust, whatever the right combination of words are. And that feels like the, the through line for it all, that you gained that as a writer and a woman and then brought it to the fruition of the project. Thank you. I've always been inspired by those um, strong Ojibwe women in any tribal community I've ever been in. And there was that part that that was also part of the inspiration for the book is 
there were these two sisters that really took me under their wing. One was my boss and the other was a coworker and they were sisters and they just, for whatever reason, they were kind to me. They taught me things about the culture. They invited me to different community and family events. And I thought, were they always like this? But then I would get to know them and I would know that like one of the sisters was like a total badass hellraiser. And so there was that, wait, what kind of woman am I going to be? Because I was thinking that I wasn't enough. And then realizing that the strong women that we see didn't start out that way, that maybe there was something in this story about young women looking to people for inspiration, but being flawed people, embracing that and For people to look at the choices, the decisions that we make when we're young and how even one decision can change the trajectory of our lives. And I love how the the female characters, the older female characters in the story are flawed and represent these different ways of being, Mm -hmm. being women, being Native women. I love Auntie. I think I would most resemble her. Oh, I want to most resemble her. I probably don't. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just so pleased that I get to have this to have this conversation with you and so pleased for this book and your success. And I'd like to ask one last question on the way out, which is what will you learn next? Um, wow. I've not been asked that because my first response is about the research that I'm doing for book two but I think the question goes deeper and I think I'm I've always struggled with money and not having enough for doing what I wanted to do like there were always you know kids and starting over after a divorce Mm -hmm. and, and and that and so I think I don't know how to handle money in terms of like when I go out with friends, I want to pick up the tab because I'm like, you know, this is a blessing. Like, come on, let's celebrate. But seeing how my friends interact or family, like my mother, my mom needed a new stove and I went with her to Lowe's and to pick it out. It was like a little over what she had budgeted for. And so I tried giving my, I like had some cash just in case. And I tried giving my dad a little, you know, some like $200 bills. And my mom saw and she goes, you put that away. And she, and my dad was like, what? She's offering. And (laughs) so I, I think that's having me re re relook at how I've viewed money Mm -hmm. And my relationships with people and not wanting there to be anything transactional in the relationships that I have with the people that I love. So I, I think maybe there's some boundaries that I, that I need to learn. So I, I, I respect that and understand it. And it also reminds me of the story. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and and some of the things that people are learning in the story <laughs> isn't it I amazing could, I could very much relate to that like you know Nate the tribal members that are getting per capita and if you've never had money before mm-hmm. you know like one of my friends was like we always paid our shut-offs we thought we were doing good <laughs> um, you know and just then to have this this income yeah I, I think that that's something that's 
It, and, it may, and it makes sense that we would have to learn. We would have to learn when something this big happens. And I, sometimes I don't think we allow for that enough in our psyche or our culture or whatever to be, you know, yeah, this huge life-changing thing happened. All this success happened. It's going to take a while to figure out what that looks like in a way that's congruent with my values and congruent right. with the people that I love. And it is going to require some time and attention. I remember an um, interview that Oprah Winfrey did. I think she was talking with Gail uh, King. She was talking about how when she started making big money that Gail would still be like, wouldn't want to accept gifts and would always tell Oprah to like, be cautious with her money, you better, you know, save it, hang on to it. And she would tell her, remember MC Hammer, like, don't, you know, because he, you know, went through a fortune, ended up, you know, having some tax issues and had a lot of people on the payroll who didn't need to be on the payroll and just that Gail had her back on yeah. that and I have friends I have friends they have your back like that too yeah good good well thank you so much for writing this book and for coming and talking to us about us and letting us into your world and your heart I appreciate it so much thank you so much this was a pleasure wasn't that a conversation about self-trust and conviction and not letting anyone else's opinion or rejection stop you? If you were going to take one thing away from the episode and put it in your creative toolkit, I'd say, take that one. (laughs) I'm going to take it. I'm going to be channeling her constantly. There's such uprightness and I'm just sitting up straighter. Or is there something else you want to remember? Because that's my hope for Create Out Loud. Always, always, always is a takeaway. There's something you can write down or text to a friend, put on a post-it note, write in your journal that will help you remember that all of the things that these guests do and think and feel is completely and utterly available to you. Next week, just by happenstance, we happen to have another Native woman on the podcast. Her name is Krista Couture. She's a singer-songwriter. I love her music. She's the author of a new memoir called How to Lose Everything about the tragedies in her life. It's a beautiful book. It's not a sad book. And this interview, oh, it just put so much in perspective for me. She's another deeply wise, self-trusting person. So I can't wait to introduce you to Krista Couture, How to Lose Everything. In the meantime, can you do me a big favor? Can you share this podcast with somebody that you love? You can share the name. You can share a link that you copy from Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I appreciate your time. I hope this podcast helps you to do a lot of creating out loud in the next week. See you soon.